Welcome to Behind the Data, the podcast that takes you inside the world of market research and breaks down the topics we love to nerd out on. Today, I'm joined by Spiros Malandrakis and Shane McGill. In addition to having accents far more exotic than mine, they have cooler job titles too. Shane leads tobacco research here at Euromonitor, and Spiros is head of alcoholic drinks research. If those industries don't sound exciting enough, together they lead research on cannabis. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Hello. So legal cannabis is a, a fairly new market, but people have been using it for centuries. Can you give me a little background on cannabis usage over time and bring us up to today? I mean, Shane could, could perhaps begin with a bit of historical context and um, just as introduction from our side as well. I think you kind of um, kind of mentioned it yourself, this, that we, we stand in this kind of very interesting intersection between industries at the moment, um, this golden triangle of seeing, if you wish, and, the, and its possibilities, uh, and that would be tobacco, alcohol, and cannabis. So in that sense, we do have a, a unique perspective of not just uh, where we stand now, but I believe a vision of where the industry will be moving towards in the next few years. But before we move to our vision, I think it would be great to hear Shane and how, how we got here, what's the history behind it. Shane? Yeah, I'll bring up my amateur historian. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting point. Uh, cannabis, I mean, you mentioned centuries. Cannabis has actually been around for millennia. Um, you know, the evidence of cultivation dates back to like 12, 13,000 BC. Uh, and there's plenty of archaeological evidence of people using it for, you know, psychoactive purposes, medicinal purposes, using it in industrial contexts and so on, right down through the millennia. And um, the, the criminalization of cannabis really has only happened uh, in the 20th century, so it's a very recent phenomenon. And when we talk about legalization of cannabis, uh, to many people that's a, a big step change in terms of policy uh, globally and so on, but really in a, in a wider historical context, it's just a return to the historical norms. So the ways people have been using it for millennia are the ways that we are now talking about the product being used uh, and the plant being used going forward in terms of its cross-category application. So what goes around comes around? I would definitely say that. And I would add to that that uh, back in the time of the Middle Ages, for example, many of the uh, spirits of the time, or even beer during those times, was actually consumed on the back of its perceived medicinal nature. If we go back to the, the, the era of um, Coca-Cola being launched back in, uh, in, in the US, uh, it was also claiming medicinal um, attributes. So this medicinal element or discussion has been integral for a very long time now. And I'm sure when you meet people and you you tell them what you do, there are a lot of jokes about maybe testing out the merchandise. Um, but but cannabis is a very serious business, and there's a lot of revenue opportunity that we'll talk about in a bit. But what I'm curious is how do you go about studying, you know, the cannabis market, especially when so much of the usage right now is still illegal and probably not reported? I think I mentioned earlier the, the concept of vision. So a couple of years ago, when I first um, thought and started looking into the potential correlations uh, or the potential uh, relationship, will it be symbiotic or will it be antagonistic between alcohol and cannabis? Um, there was not many people in the industry that were actually uh, um, speaking about it, let alone not even uh, acknowledging uh, the massive green elephant in the room, if you wish. Um, mm -hmm. To the extent that someone 
has a certain vision towards uh, where the industry, I mean, from an alcohol perspective, at least from my side, where the industry is coming from, um, the, the dangers on the way uh, to the future, where the, the, the massive uh, consumer trends and changes and shifts that I have witnessed in the last 10 years that I've been covering it, then cannabis can, um, I think, it becomes something much more uh, pedestrian, um, just another industry with the potential to become a business opportunity equaling or even rivaling alcoholic drinks that I know so well. So I, I believe I could, I could summarize it by essentially using uh, the toolkit, the research toolkit and understanding and insights I have gained through looking alco towards alcoholic drinks for the last decades and then superimposing that uh, um, on, on the cannabis, on the nascent uh, uh, still embry embryonic stage of the cannabis industry and I think there have been some extremely interesting insights coming from that. Yeah, I think you know a lot of what we talk about when we're looking at the, the legal cannabis and the evolving industry uh, is as much looking at newer entrants into that industry, what will newer consumers do or consumers who perhaps haven't consumed cannabis for many, many decades, uh, what type of products they'll be looking for, what type of you know use occasions will they have, what time, type of problems will they be looking for cannabis infused products uh, for them to solve. So in some sense, the fact that we can't directly use the newer products that are being um, that are being developed, it puts us in the same mindset as those type of, of, of fresh consumers to the category. So as much you know, as we're looking at existing consumer bases, existing product uses and so on, we're aware of the recreational use and all of the kind of, um, uh, and everything that goes around that, uh, there's a much wider opportunity here uh, in legal cannabis and and that's tapping into all of these new use occasions, all of these newer consumers, different demographics, and so on and so forth. So I think it's also about you know having some empathy uh, for what those types of consumers are, what those demographics want, and, and being able to develop, as uh, as Gross mentioned, a vision of the industry going forward uh, in relation to that. Um, so you mentioned you know new potential consumers. What what are some of the other reasons a company would want to get into the business? And what kind of potential market size are we really talking about? Uh, as much as I, uh, I would love to give you a number, I think it would be um, uh, a bit far-fetched under, under the circumstances and considering how fluid everything is in, in many of the key markets and the markets that are potentially entering the legalization arena in the next couple of years, uh, I think it would be best to just say that it would, um, it would be a size that would, as I said earlier, would rival the size of established industries like alcoholic drinks uh, and beyond in the next few years and we're talking definitely uh, within the range of hundreds of billions of dollars uh, and much more considering the possibilities of collaborations or uh, ingredient combinations in industries that range from pet foods to beauty and personal care just yesterday we were looking at some presentations from some of the key companies out there uh, suggesting uh, uses like intimate gels, uh, fabrics to everything that anyone can imagine at the moment would essentially be massively disrupted in the next few years. So the possibilities essentially are infinite. Of course, by definition uh, and on the back of our expertise, both for me and for Shane, we start looking into this from our respective perspective of either alcohol or tobacco, which we both believe would be in the forefront, essentially the flag bearers of this green revolution that will continue uh, gaining pace in the next few years. So where are we seeing the most usage right now and where could we see the most opportunity? 
I mean, uh, you know, I think that's a really big question. You know, cannabis is something that's widely used uh, across the world. Uh, the, the penetration of use varies in different regions and so on, but there, you know, there are very few markets in the world, very few countries in the world where cannabis use is, is completely unknown. Um, so in a, in a sort of the context of a worldwide illegal market, it's something that's um, widespread and that's obviously one of the things that is attracting the types of industries that we've been talking about to enter legal space. In terms of you know, legal markets um, and ones that are already up and running and established, I think that the region that's looked at obviously is North America. I think Canada is the most well-developed market. You've had a, a medical market there uh, since the early 2000s. Um, it will go fully recreational, what's sometimes referred to as adult use on October 17th, and you'll have gradually then a rollout of sort of full kind of uh, different range of consumer products with cannabis in them for recreational purposes. The other one I think that's often highlighted is California. It's uh, a huge economy uh, on its own, is, is one of the top 10 economies globally. Um, it's got a huge consumer base, a very sophisticated kind of consumer and so on. And again, it's often held up as a model for the future of the cannabis industry. Really intense competition, uh, wide range of product choice, uh, different types of products being developed for consumers. A lot of the MPD and, and new product innovation happens there. So I think, you know, there's a background, um, widespread use of cannabis globally. The really advanced legal markets are in North America, but we expect that to, to very quickly spread into uh, a range of European markets and elsewhere then globally. So we expect this is something that will, will, will happen very quickly and, and will start spreading globally. Um, but I would add to that on the political context of this, because uh, historically, California has been used as the benchmark uh, for the direction of federal politics in the US as well. And obviously, the key question, the holy grail, if you wish, at the moment is federal legalization in the U.S. Yeah, it's a hot button issue in North America, for sure. Exactly. That, that is exactly what will open the floodgates for many more of the major FMCG players to actually enter it from packaged foods to uh, beauty and personal care. Companies that are currently staying on the sidelines because um, there are very strict, uh, sometimes very confusing uh, legislative networks and, uh, and a background on when it comes to um, uh, federal use of funds, uh, use of banks on a federal level, uh, or even innovation when it comes to crossing state lines. So uh, California will be um, a pioneer, but at the same time, the benchmark for the entire nation of the U.S. and eventually, ultimately, for the world to follow. When it comes to, to, to Western Europe or to Europe in general, um, from our discussions with people within the trade, trade within the last few months, I mean, it, it's an industry that's only a couple of years old at the moment anyway, Western Europe will be the next uh, major uh, stepping stone for the evolution of the, of the global cannabis industry. Uh, as uh, Shane briefly mentioned earlier, I think I agree with him uh, fully that medicinal use, or at least medicinal positioning, um, will be the first stepping stone in this long process. Um, and what we have witnessed in the last few years, I think, and I would probably agree on that with Shane as well, is that it is a process that is actually much faster than people thought. We need to remember that the conversation in Canada uh, began back in 2000. Um, it took about 18 years to get to this October when uh, full legalization is in place. But uh, if you look at other markets, perhaps even in the UK, uh, where we're currently based and discussing all this, um, the development of the conversation, the direction of it, uh, and the uh, much more open-minded trajectory of, of, of concepts and arguments 
on the table at the moment has gone much faster than anyone predicted even one or two years ago. So I wouldn't be surprised if Western Europe and key markets like the UK or Germany uh, become much more important in terms of sales within the next few years. Uh, I know in the U.S., uh, even though it's not legal on the federal level, sometimes individual states or cities, you know, are sort of maybe chipping away at that. And we see legalization on smaller scales. Are we seeing that in Europe or other countries, you know, where one city or district or or part of a country has already legalized? Uh, it happens to a certain. I mean, obviously, it, it depends on the political systems. Uh, the, you know, the U.S. is a heavily federal system, and, and states are able to, with the states' rights um, principles and so on, are able to, to take their own route in terms of cannabis legalization. It does happen to a certain extent. So we've seen, in, for example, parts of Spain, uh, Barcelona, the city of Barcelona, effectively legalized um, the sale of cannabis through what they call cannabis clubs. So it was kind of a private um, club uh, organization system. Uh, and that's something that happened at that regional level within that city. Similarly, in somewhere like Switzerland, for example, they're actually trialing something that's coordinated, I think, by the central government, but where they're they're trialing different systems of regulation in different cantons and, and federal regions within Switzerland. So there is some elements of of this, and obviously, um, you know, every country has those uh, Colorados or those San Francisco's that are maybe a little bit more progressive, a little bit a, ahead of the curve, so to speak. Uh, than other parts uh, and are pushing uh, for this to happen. And you could, you could probably see, again, anecdotes in terms of uh, what we've seen here in the UK is that certain police forces have said that they will no longer enforce certain uh, infringements of cannabis-related or drug-related laws when it comes to cannabis possession and so on. So I think that's something that's a feature uh, of the legalization movement. But um, there is such a, an amount of capital, I think, involved in the global cannabis industry now. There's a sheer... Uh, scale of money and, and money is very difficult to stop as well as sort of you know broad uh, political support among societies and communities for cannabis legalization so I think again I agree with Spiros this is something that is happening uh, quite quickly and will continue to happen um, you know the one point I would make I think is that regulation is very important here and I know this is somewhere uh, something where myself and Spiros differ a little bit and it's 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 one wrinkle where it's interesting that we come from different kind of industry backgrounds so spirits coming from an alcoholic drinks industry background tends to look more at branding tends to look more at the perception of the consumer regulation is slightly uh, less important in the alcoholic drinks industry than it is in tobacco so coming from a tobacco background i'm, I'm quite focused on the types of regulation um, that will be brought in to regulate legal cannabis markets and i think you know there is this perception that uh, legal cannabis will be some kind of free for all, or, or these are, are great events uh, for personal freedom. But uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily always follow. Um, and I think, for example, in Canada, the initial regulation, at least that they've put in place, is quite restrictive. It makes cannabis um, de facto more like a tobacco product than an alcoholic drinks product. And similarly, in, in the European markets, I think we'll see a much more medicalized approach where uh, the legalization is happening. But the access to uh, the product is done very much through health systems and health services where um, insurance um, industries and infrastructure involved and so on and so forth. So there are so many fascinating aspects um, of the cannabis industry, the legal cannabis industry. And that's another interesting um, element of it is that, you know, people will have different approaches and different regions will have different approaches to legalization over time and the regulatory structures they put in place. 
so we're not recreating the summer of love, you know, with all of this legalization. <laughs> I think we, we will eventually do so, um, but it will have to start um, uh, through oh, yeah. some part. Spiros doesn't need to do with it anyway. <laughs> Spiros is like, that's what I call last weekend. <laughs> Every weekend. Uh, but I think um, um, to add to what Shane was saying, and I think he made a very interesting point there about the difference in perspective um, coming from an alcoholic drinking side of things or from a tobacco side of things. Um, and... Uh, I do agree that um, alcohol historically has been a lifestyle industry more than anything else. So branding exercises, positioning, uh, the premiumization narrative, all of these things have historically been much more important in the evolution of the industry rather than um, a, a strict and rigid approach through um, legislative uh, guidelines, which of course are becoming increasingly important in, uh, in alcohol as well. It's not going to be a, a straightforward uh, road to legalization across the board. Uh, I think uh, the medicinal or uh, pharmaceutical or over-the-counter health and wellness kind of approach will be the first uh, wave uh, and uh, there will be some pushback, there will be um, uh, certain elements in society or political forces that will oppose it, so it has to be done in a very conservative and careful way, uh, but that does not mean that in the longer term, and that's I guess where our uh, mine and, and Shane views uh, start to diverge, if you wish, uh, that in the longer term, I think uh, it will be uh, much closer to where the alcohol industry is at the moment rather than where tobacco is at the moment. I think that what medicinal use uh, and the word of mouth conversations will actually do uh, gradually, but ultimately that's going to be the effect, they will normalize the discussion. It's not just about legalization, it's about also normalization of the concepts of cannabis, of it not becoming a taboo to discuss anymore. When we reach that stage, we can, of course, discuss the next summer of love. <laughs> uh, education is very important in terms of the future evolution of the industry. So it's not, as Spiros very correctly says, it's not just about legalization, it's also about the education piece and, and how well companies will be able to do that um, and I think there is a difference between, let's say, people uh, being in favour of the legalisation of cannabis, which tends to be high in a lot of markets. There's a distinction between that and, and them saying individually themselves that they'd like to embrace a cannabis product or use a cannabis product. So I think there is still some, some work to be done in terms of positioning cannabis as an ingredient, as a product and so on, and what it can do for people. Well, let's talk about maybe some of those products and, and your backgrounds. I'm glad you brought this up because I feel like tobacco, cannabis and alcohol are often all lumped together in a generic category like illicit or sin. And it sounds really edgy and exciting. Um, but how much you know overlap is there? I know I've heard about Lagunitas venturing into the THC-infused space or companies like Molson Coors partnering with cannabis companies. But is this kind of a, a one-off news-breaking situation or is this where the industry is heading? Um, I can I can start myself because uh, I think we can both agree, uh, Shane, uh, that uh, alcohol seems to be taking the pioneer pioneering role in these um, proceedings. Uh, I think uh, at the moment we are facing a, a game of um, uh, uh, hip music, musical chairs, uh, if you wish, just to, to put this, the, the right soundtrack in the background. Uh, there's only so many cannabis companies available. And uh, the industry that is feeling the pressure and uh, essentially becoming defensive across most of the West 
is alcoholic drinks companies. Uh, if you look at, the, and that's that's where my background actually helps to, to put things in perspective. What do you mean by feeling the pressure? Uh, it's a pressure that is um, manifold. It's, there's not only one kind of pressure. From uh, macroeconomic forces, limiting the discretionary income of millennials and Generation Z consumers, which historically would have currently been obviously the core audience for the alcohol industry, um, that's one. Uh, a change in, in the way people consume alcohol in general is that since they're increasingly moving to more, towards more premium products, but at the same time, they expect to drink less and less. Uh, consumer perceptions, um, the way people, people going out, um, from the smoking ban to, to the almost uh, the massive decline of high energy occasions, meaning clubs or, or you know, uh, nightlife occasions like that, and the move towards more slower occasions like uh, cocktail bars, for example, which would involve uh, much higher value products, but consumed in much lower quantities. This is like an interesting combination of, of a background, and, and, and most of the top line volumes of most of these key companies that you, you, you mentioned. I could also add Constellation to the list. I could, I could add Diageo to the list that we know that they are also looking actively into it at the moment and many more that I cannot actually name names at the moment for obvious reasons. Oh, come on, but, Spiros. Yeah. Let us in on the secret. That, that is, <laughs> that's the nature of our job, I guess. But I, I can definitely say that there is many more than the ones that have already made the headlines. And these are more than enough to raise an eyebrow already. Uh, and I think this process will only accelerate in the, in the next few months. And to start where I began earlier, it's a game of musical chairs when it comes to the actual cannabis companies available for collaborations or for M&A. So uh, the moment Constellation began this process, the dominoes were very quick to fall because obviously the others felt like there would not be so many opportunities available if they postponed this process for far too long. We also still don't know to what extent um, a substitution effect is actually there. Is cannabis going to take away some of the already declining penetration rates of alcohol? Is it going to be adding to sales of alcohol? Is it going to be completely neutral? In my mind, uh, the substitution effect is actually real. And considering the saturated state of the American markets, um, or European markets for that matter, even a minor additional decline on top of a static market could potentially be detrimental for companies already on the defensive. So that's what I've been saying for the past two years back then, a lone voice in the desert these days. But look who has the last laugh. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, things have changed. Uh, I think it's, it's a no-brainer, uh, one-way road towards that direction. I don't know if tobacco would think of it in the same way, Shane? Yeah, Shane, my question was more, you know, do these two things complement each other or is it almost conflicting areas of interest with tobacco and cannabis? Uh, I mean, I think to a certain extent that remains to be seen, um, you know, in the same sense as we don't know if there's a substitution effect or what, what that substitution effect is in alcoholic drinks. We're not quite sure, I think, how the legalization of cannabis will affect tobacco, but I think largely speaking, it's probably more likely to be complementary in the sense that if you look at the consumer types, there's a certain overlap, um, at least in North America. Uh, smokers and nicotine users are likely also to be cannabis users, so you're talking about the same user group. I was talking to uh, uh, the owner of a cannabis company and they were talking about entering the Canadian market and where they were and how they were deciding where to distribute their products to and they said we decided to go through vape stores in the end because if you go to a Canadian vape store you stop 10 people eight of those people are likely also to be cannabis users as well so there's this overlap uh, there's also an overlap 
to a certain extent in terms of the missions as well. If you think about the reasons why someone uses cannabis, it's to relax, uh, it's to unwind and so on, which is ostensibly the same reason that someone smokes a cigarette or uses uh, a nicotine product. So I think there are those sort of complementary overlaps uh, between the user, the user missions and so on. I think going forward, that's the way the tobacco industry is looking at this. They see cannabis as something that could be additive in terms of the revenue, offering them future uh, additional scope for revenue growth in terms of an industry, their core industry that's senescent. It's similar to the alcoholic drinks industry, I think. It's, it's surviving. Uh, you're talking about in the US, for example, secular declines year on year by two to three percent. They're able to continue to generate value similar to the alcoholic drinks industry, so fewer smokers but paying more for the product. But it's not regenerating itself. It's not uh, attracting newer consumers into the category. So I think some of the industry uh, in terms of tobacco sees cannabis as a, as, a, as a future growth driver for them. The one sort of wrinkle here, I think, is that if you look at these vape consumers, for example, who are using their vapor devices to consume cannabis potentially, when they're coming back into the tobacco or nicotine category, they're unlikely then to go and use a combustible cigarette. They may then start looking um, to use vapor devices or these kind of products to consume nicotine as well. And I think that's something that perhaps the tobacco industry is underestimating a little, the sort of transformative effect of legal cannabis uh, on their own core products. The fact that it will accelerate this trend that's happening anyway, the shift to reduce risk and vapor products and the fragmentation of nicotine delivery. So in general, it's something that's complementary um, that offers the industry uh, growth potential, but actually they also need to be aware of the fact that this is something that could start uh, having an effect on their core business as well. What about outside of alcohol and tobacco? Like, What are some of the business opportunities as legalization and education and all of the things you mentioned are, are spreading wider and wider across the globe? So, I mean, you know, uh, Spiros used the word infinite earlier on. There are almost unlimited um, possibilities, I think, in terms of cross-category. You look at, you know, we, we spoke about beverages, you know, for example, Coca-Cola looking at sports recovery drinks, the sort of functional drinks in the non-alcoholic drink space. Um, we've seen companies launching products in the BPC space, uh, a company uh, that we were, we were speaking to yesterday uh, that operates in Colombia and, and cultivates uh, cannabis are beginning to cultivate uh, cannabis in Colombia. Uh, just launched a range of creams, uh, CBD infused creams. So they're, you know, across the entire almost CPG uh, space and beyond, you can see opportunities for cannabis as an ingredient. Uh, and then you begin to look sort of uh, in terms of adjacent service type industries for the cannabis industry. So the legal, it's going to be a, <laughs> it's going to be a highly legalistic industry, uh, even if the regulation is on the sort of more Spiros-like end of the spectrum, let's say. <laughs> is that the new industry term, the Spiros end? <laughs> I think I think it has. Been. It is now. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's a massive. Uh, it's a massive uh, range of possibilities. EPG uh, into into service industries as well. I would, I would even add, add to that uh, industries that we we haven't necessarily thought about in the past. For example, um, California, uh, in, in the perspective of alcoholic drinks production and sales, is obviously uh, very well known around the world uh, on the back of its um, extremely advanced wine culture. And wine visits or tours of California have historically been a massive uh, revenue generator for... I am a, a frequent contributor to that that wine economy of Northern California, <laughs> yes. Exactly. So uh, the, the, the rise of the cannabis industry provides unique new opportunities, for example, of uh, weed and wine 
pairing tours, which is shifting the attention from this kind of monodimensional, historically conservative looking right now approach of just going to vineyards, actually combining that at the same time, or combining specific seeds with specific wine products, just to understand the, the nuances in flavor, the nuances in, in the effect. Uh, uh, and, uh, just to add to something we also said earlier, um, while alcohol has historically been very specific in its effect, doesn't really have any, doesn't really make any massive difference if you consume um, vodka or uh, bourbon or beer in, when you count it in terms of liters of pure alcohol at the very least. Uh, cannabis does have, or at least provides the opportunity of a certain degree of customization. So specific strains will be used for relaxation moments, but other strains will be used for high energy environments and they can be dialed up or down according to the specifics of the occasion. All of these little elements of this cocktail, if you wish, would uh, lead us to the product that you mentioned earlier, um, this kind of seltzer, um, non-alcoholic, THC-infused, low-calorie products uh, in different varietals and variants that would allow consumers to tailor their night according to their exact needs uh, and not according to the effects of the product they, they are drinking. So do you think like a sommelier or a mixologist, whatever the equivalent for cannabis would be, is that going to be the, the hot new career of the future? You're talking about bad tenders, bad as in the bad, uh, bad tenders. That's the, that's the term um, that would replace bar tenders in many of the U.S. states at the moment. Wow. Uh, it's, it is, in my mind, the alcohol industry hasn't actually faced this kind of disruption for the last three millennia. Uh, and that should probably give you an idea of the, of the size of the price that we're talking about. That's really exciting stuff. I'm, I'm curious to see what comes to fruition and how quickly... Um, before we wrap, I like to ask everyone, what is the weirdest thing you've ever researched? And I would imagine the two of you have so many stories to choose from. Um, I, 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 I can start myself. I think, I think, um, I don't consider anything weird. Uh, I, I think my perspective on it is, uh, I, I love things that are weird in the sense of breaking taboos breaking barriers or going against the grain. I believe in the power of data, but I also believe even more in, in the power of people that translate data into actionable stories and narratives. And I think uh, stories from uh, the launch of uh, Blue Wine, uh, when I was presenting this as a future innovation a couple of years back, I was almost lynched by a conference uh -oh. I was uh, presenting it to, but um, just a couple of months back though, I saw these kind of products making inroads in France from all places. And in what is blue wine? Like literally the color blue? Yes, color blue. Breaking away with this kind of historic fascination with the, the three and only three available colors. It's natural pigmentation used for, uh, to make wine look blue. Or the launch of the world's first non-alcoholic spirit. When I, when I started writing about it, it was another completely insane idea. Now, uh, two years later, it is one of the most successful brands in the world. And I'm happy that I was again there when I could see the potential for success behind the weirdness. And I think Do that's... you have any investment tips for us since you're so good at predicting the future or lottery numbers? I don't know. Any thoughts on that? <laughs> I'm sure our clients um, would be very happy to, to approach for the rights. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different episode. Stock tips with Spiros. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think coming from the tobacco industry, uh, which has been a relatively um, 
staid industry with the, with a lack of product development. I think I've, I've lived quite a sheltered life, but uh, you know, coming into to legal cannabis, it's it's a fa fascinating industry, as I said. It's also pretty weird and wonderful. So I think uh, continuing the uh, pet theme, uh, we've seen cannabis pet products that you can give to your uh, dog or or cat for a, a family experience. Like what? Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so I think that one's a, a pretty interesting product, and, and uh, yeah, it, it's an example of, of the type of product we'll see coming down the line in this industry as well. So there'll be uh, more weird and wonderful things like that. Is it for medicinal purposes or recreational for Fido or whoever you're feeding it to? Uh, I think that's probably open to debate. These are CBD products, um, and they have a calming effect on the animals. Interesting. So I, I think it's a yeah, maybe a spiritual application, let's say. Very interesting choice of words there. <laughs> well, gentlemen, thank you so much, Shane and Spiros. It's always a pleasure talking to you and, and learning more about the future of cannabis, all kinds of products we should be on the look for. I feel like we've had so many future predictions that everyone is is curious to see come to fruition. So again, thanks for sharing the latest insights with us. It was an absolute pleasure. pleasure. And thank you for tuning into this episode of Behind the Data. We hope you're as curious as we are and will continue to listen as we dissect data, research, and everything in between.